Jesus came to teach us one thing and one thing alone, and he hammered home his humble homily with such relentless monotony that sometimes he could sound like a CD player with a stuck and stuttering laser beam. The kingdom of God was what he came to teach us about. The thing is, the idea of the kingdom of God is so large and so complicated and so indescribable that Jesus was never quite sure he was getting across to us what he wanted to tell us, and so he'd used multiple metaphors and various word pictures. The kingdom of God is like a sower with his seed. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a treasure in a field. The kingdom of God is like the pearl of great price. The kingdom of God is like a vineyard owner who hired some migrant workers The kingdom of God is like a king who forgave an enormous debt. The kingdom of God is like a landowner who leased his land to evil tenants. And today, I'm happy to tell you that once, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a party. Actually, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wanted to throw a wedding banquet for his son. Apparently, in this culture, it's the father of the groom, not the father of the bride who has to take out a second mortgage to pay for the wedding. But he's the king, so he can afford it. He finds himself a hall and a caterer who will charge him about 150 bucks a plate. He chooses the menu, filet mignon. He stocks the bar with top-shelf spirits and fine French wine and kegs of beer for the groom's fraternity brothers. He hires a 12-piece band with trumpets and keyboards and drums and divas. The flowers, the limos, the buses, the hotel rooms spare no expense, he says. But then, of course, the day before the party, he's shuffling through his little pile of RSVPs and discovers that he's received not one single acceptance to his lavish hospitality. But he's bound and determined to have a party, and this host will not give up. He sends his emissaries and his secretaries and his party planners to ring the doorbells of the guests who've been invited and said, please come, everything's ready. Look at the feast I've spread. But still they won't come. Some of them have very good excuses. Matthew tells us that one of them had to tend to his business and another had to farm his land. And of course... The good people in any community always have good excuses why they can't be partying with God. They're doing very good things. They're world building. They're kingdom building. They're not interested in God's kingdom because they're building their own. The cool kids at any high school in America have very good excuses for not partying with God. They have to study. They have to learn a new cheerleader routine. They have soccer practice, and it's always on Sunday morning. They have to get their SAT scores up so that they can get into the eating clubs at Princeton where Scott Fitzgerald and Bill Bradley and Brooke Shields hung out. When the father of the groom discovers that not one member of polite society has any interest whatsoever in his lavish hospitality, he just goes ballistic. He's bound and determined to have a party, even if no one wants to come And so he sends his emissaries out into the highways and the byways, the lanes, the intersections, the ghettos and the magnificent mile, the hovels and the mansions, and says, go invite everyone you find, the good and the bad, because I want my wedding hall filled with guests. 
Now, in the third gospel, Luke tells this same story, and Luke goes into a little more detail into what Matthew means by the good and the bad. Luke tells us it's the poor, the blind, the crippled, and the lame. And, of course, that is a laundry list of all of the wretched woebegones of first-century Palestinian society that no polite people would ever have dinner with. The boss says, I mean to have a party. Bring me everyone with a big L on their forehead for loser. Do you see, friends, that this is the heart and center of the gospel? This is the New Testament distilled to its essence. I want to have a party, and whoever will come, they will be my friends, no matter what, no matter who. This party is unlike any wedding reception you've ever been invited to or not. Have you noticed that except for whom you sleep with, whom you eat with is the most precisely regulated part of any human society? This is true in first century Palestine and in 21st century America. There are more rules having to do with table manners than about any other thing except sex. Have you read uh, Richard Russo's lovely little novel called Empire Falls? about life in a small, main, rust-bucket, mill-town. Empire Falls won the Pulitzer Prize 12 years ago. One of the most memorable characters in Empire Falls is Christina. Her friends call her Tick. She's 16 years old and a student at the high school. And she and her, her friends are having trouble parsing and negotiating the carefully nuanced and complicated caste system at an American high school cafeteria. Some of her friends are sitting at a table built for 20 all by themselves in the middle of a crowded cafeteria. And as for Tick herself, a quirk of her class schedule means that she is going to have to eat lunch at a time when every other student at Empire High is in class. So there she sits alone in a sprawling cafeteria, which is just fine with her, she says, because better to eat alone in an empty cafeteria than in one that's full of people. There are more rules about whom we eat with than about anything else in our world, in high school cafeterias, in the eating clubs at Princeton, and at every wedding reception you've ever been invited to or not. We're very careful about whom we eat with. And poor Jesus, he just never understood this. He would eat with anybody. And he would tell stories about kings who invited the poor, the blind, the lame, and the crippled to his party. Philip Yancey tells the story uh, about a wedding reception that almost didn't happen 20 years ago. A young couple went to the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston to plan their wedding reception. They, they agonized over the menu, chose just the perfect china and silver and flower arrangements. And at the end of the meeting, the estimate came to $13,000. The couple wrote out a check for half of that, and then they went home to flip through books of wedding announcements. And the day that the announcements were supposed to be hitting the mailboxes, the groom said, I'm not sure about this. 
It's a big commitment. Let's wait a little longer. And when the young woman returned to the Boston Hyatt Hotel to cancel her reservation, the kind events manager couldn't have been more understanding. The same thing happened to me, honey, she said as she shared the story of her own broken engagement. But about the refund, the manager had bad news. The contract is binding, she said. You only get $1,300 back. You have two choices. You can forfeit your down payment or go ahead and have a party. Well, this young woman, like the father in Jesus' little story, was mad as hell. Not only that, but like the host in Jesus' little story, she was bound and determined to have a party. And so she decided to go ahead with it. She changed the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom, she said. And then she sent out invitations to all the rescue missions and homeless shelters in Boston. And so on a warm June evening in 1990 at the Boston Hyatt, people who were used to dining on unfinished pizza fished out of the dumpsters behind the Pizza Hut were feasting this evening on Cordon Bleu. Hyatt waiters in tuxedos served silver and crystal to the lame and the halt, leaning on crutches and walkers. Vagrants, bag ladies, and addicts sipped champagne and ate wedding cake and danced until the wee hours of the morning to big band tunes. And those who saw it said, the kingdom of God is like a table. One last thing and then I'll quit. Joe Shuba died week before last. He was 89 years old. Does anybody know who Joe Shuba is? I didn't either until I read the New York Times obituary about him, which amounted to about a thousand words on October 1. Joe Shuba was the son of a Czechoslovakian immigrant steelworker from Youngstown, Ohio. And he played baseball for several seasons with the Brooklyn Dodgers until he retired in 1955. His lifetime average was 259, and he hit 24 home runs. But while he played, they called him Shotgun Shuba for the line drives he sprayed to all corners of the outfield. On April 18, 1946, Joe Shuba was playing for the Montreal Royals, a minor league farm team for the Brooklyn Dodgers. And just a couple of you will know that the Montreal Royals in April of 1946 was the team Jackie Robinson made his debut with. And on April 18, 1946, in the first inning, Jackie Robinson grounded out. And then in the third inning, Jackie came up to hit again with two men on base, and he crushed a drive over the left field wall for a three-run homer. And the on-deck batter went to the home plate to greet him there. It was Joe Shuba, and he shook Jackie's hand, and an Associated Press photographer snapped that moment for all time. When Joe Shuba retired from baseball in 1955, he went back to Youngstown and became a postal clerk. He said, I didn't care what color he was. He was my teammate, and he hit a home run, and I was glad to be on his team. No one ever remembers anything about Joe Shuba's baseball career 
except for that moment at home plate. And as for Joe himself, the only memento he saved from his baseball career was that photograph of him and Jackie at home plate. When his son Michael would come home from school with tales of bigger boys picking on smaller boys, Joe would point to the photograph and say, look at that and remember always what it means that you treat all people equally. Such an unremarkable thing, right? Shaking hands at home plate, which is what everybody did in an era before fist bumps and high fives. But the Times called that moment a simple, silent, seminal time in baseball history. And I like to think of it as a hint, a guess, a foreshadowing of the wedding feast where all are welcome, the rich and the poor, the blind and the seeing, the crippled and the able. There is nothing which prevents you from coming to this table. The feast, the banquet, is a glimpse of God's shining tomorrow, a foreshadowing of the world which is coming just as sure as the dawn. The kingdom of God is like a table, and at this table no one eats alone. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.